What a powerful name indeed. Let's talk about him, shall we? If you've got your Bibles, Philippians 4 is where we are. We're starting in verse uh, 10 today. You hear me say this a lot, and I actually really mean it, but this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I know that if you've been keeping track over the last 10 years, I've said that about 150 times. I love this one because when I read this passage from Paul, it is such a challenge to me, and I think that as we get into it, you're going you're gonna to understand that. You're going to get there yourself. You're going to realize that uh, maybe there's all kinds of things in life that we do well, and we're, we're pretty happy about with this one and that one, but he talks about contentment today. Paul's going to talk about being content, and that, that's a tough one. That's a challenge. And so if you've got your Bibles, open up to uh, Philippians 4, starting in the 10th verse. Paul now is in prison. He's writing to this church in Philippi, a church that he planted uh, as a mission church. It's in a Roman colony. There's a very small number of Christians uh, around a very, very pagan culture, amidst a very pagan culture. And he loves this church. And so uh, we're kind of picking up the middle of his Minnesota goodbye because it's a long goodbye. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I love that passage. It is a challenge. It is, it is an encouragement. And Paul starts the way Paul has so often been in this letter, the rejoicing. It is rejoicing, rejoicing, rejoicing. Paul's in prison, and he wants to make sure this church knows they should be people of joy. They should be full of joy. We've talked about our situation and our circumstances should not define our joy. Jesus in us should define our joy. Sixteen times. In this little letter, and it's not a very long one, he uses the word rejoice or rejoicing. In case we haven't gotten it, as Christians who have been saved by the death and the resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and the salvation of our souls, we have no reason not to be full of joy. In fact, more than anybody else on earth, we should be people of joy. Joy doesn't depend on our circumstances. It doesn't depend on our situation. We have joy in Jesus all the time. The question is, does the world know you have that joy? Do you live as a person of joy? Does the world see you? And by the world, I mean the people who aren't Christians. And if you want to, go even to your friends who are Christians. Do they see you as a person of joy? Do they see you as a person who is living out the love of Jesus in your life? And we're going to talk about some very practical ways that we can do that in a little bit. But if we've got the joy of Jesus in us, a joy that cannot be taken away, that doesn't change with situations and circumstances, do you smile with the joy of Jesus when you're out in the world? Part of the reason this passage is a challenge for me is I tend to be kind of a serious type a personality that is sort of always driving forward, and I don't always take the time to let what's inside of me out, and, and I don't smile as often as I should. This is a challenge for me because I have no reason not to. I know the love of Jesus. I know, believe me, I know what Jesus has done for me. But I don't always let the world see that. And so the first question I've got for you is, does the world know that you have the joy of Jesus in you? Starting in verse 10. I rejoiced, Paul says, in the Lord greatly 
that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. It doesn't completely make sense until we remember the situation. Paul's in prison. And it says that this church had been concerned for him, but they hadn't been showing it for a while. But now they've got opportunity. And what that means is this. Uh, in Paul's day, and there are still countries in our world today that the jails function like this. If you're put in jail, you're on your own. They supply you with a wall and guards to keep you from getting out. But your clothing, your food, any extras you might get, that's got to come from friends and family. They don't provide any of that. So when Paul's in jail, there's no entertainment, there's no meal plan, there's no jail commissary. You can't build up a little bit of a slush fund in order to get the things that make your stay easier. There's none of that. If there's not people who are caring for you, and that means food and clothing and whatever else you might have that you need or want that you're allowed, they've got to bring it in from the outside. And there are still countries that that is the case today. So no uniforms, no meal plan, no commissary, anything extra, you're going to have to have someone who cares about you bring to you. So when Paul says, you have revived or renewed your concern for me, he says that, yeah, I know you had been concerned, but you didn't have opportunity. And so who is it that brings uh, the, the, the sign of their concern, the money to Paul, it's this guy named Epaphroditus. He's from the church in Philippi. And at the beginning of the letter of Philippians, Paul recognizes him because he'd been sick and the people were worried that he was going to die. And so Paul has got all these reasons to rejoice. Why had the church stopped supporting him? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. It just says that they had, and then a time existed where they weren't supporting, but now that he's in prison, and so leave it to Paul. Paul says, now that I'm in jail, you've got an opportunity to show your love for me. You've got an opportunity to support me. He, he's not even looking at it as, now I get some of the things that I need. What he's doing is saying, you've got this awesome opportunity to show your care for me. How great is that? God puts me in jail so you could love on me a little bit. Paul and his idea of rejoicing is just something that most of us have a hard time completely grasping. But why had the church lost touch with them? The Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know. It could be that as he continued to move on and his journeys continued, they had just lost touch. That happens with us and friends, right? You're in touch with someone every day when they move, and then after a while it just kind of gets less and less, and then it's, oh, yeah, I guess I remember. It could be that they'd just kind of forgotten. They'd slipped from his mind. It could be that uh, they were more concerned about taking care of their own needs, whatever was happening in the church, whatever they thought was important to them. It could be as simple as they quit looking to support Paul, who was going out to build a church around the world, and they were just simply concerned about their own needs. They started looking in rather than looking out and looking up. And that's something that we're going to talk about as we go through this, because that really is easy to let it happen. So here's something that I do know that we get from this, this passage. And, and this is a simple fact, and history bears this out. When the people, if you're a note taker, here's one for your notes, right? When the people of the local church stop caring about the people of the global church, and they're no longer focused and the priority is no longer on the Great Commission, then the faith of that church and the faith of those people is already beginning to die. That could be very well what's happened here. That they've, they've stopped being concerned about Paul 
because they're more worried about themselves. And so when the, when the local church and the people of the local church stop caring about the global church, stop caring about missions and getting the good news of Jesus out to people who haven't heard it yet, that church and the people of that church, their faith is already beginning to die. I was told once years ago about a guy who had come back to his church after having been gone for a long time. And church had a long history of, of missions, global missions and, and supporting global missions. And he came back and he was excited to be a part of this culture again. And it didn't take him very long. And, and he said that I, I realized we had stopped looking out. We had stopped looking up. All that we did anymore is looked in. All that we were concerned about was ourselves and our needs. And he said, I realize that the memory of who we were is much better than the reality of who we are. Uh, Our church had been a great mission church. But the reality is today we weren't the church that we were. And that's so easy for us as Christians to get spiritual about our best days. And, And the memory of who we were, the memory of something that we did becomes greater than the reality of who we are. And so if our care, if our concern, if our support of the global church isn't as great or greater than, than our own church and the people right around us, then there's, there's something missing in our faith. There's something about us that's missing the opportunity that we have in the Great Commission. And so, simple real-life test here. Let's bring the gospel home. When you hear about someone or you know someone at work or someone in your family loses their job, they, they fa- face a financial hardship, maybe they have not a place to live anymore, they, um, whatever, whatever the situation might be, maybe they actually become homeless. When you encounter those people, do you see them as an opportunity to show the love of Jesus through your generosity? Or do you consider them to be a burden that it's easier to just avoid and stay away from? They'll figure their problem out. They can come back when it's over. See, this is where the gospel gets uncomfortable for us. And, and this is a little bit of what Paul's talking about. See, the people used to take good care of him. And then there was a time when they didn't take care of him at all. But now he's in jail. Now that he's in jail, suddenly they're back and interested and they're helping him out. So as you encounter, as I encounter those people in our world that need a little bit of help, A little bit of grace, a little bit of understanding, a little bit of money. Do we see that as an opportunity to share the love of Jesus, to share the generosity of what God has given us? Or or do we consider those people to be a burden that we just need to avoid? And so here's the thing. Rather than going to that one moment that we might have had where we got it right and our memory is greater than our reality, let's bring it home a little bit closer, okay? I've not seen it in New London and Spicer, Walmer, St. Cloud, Minneapolis. You pull up to the stop sign or the intersection on a busy street and you've got that person off to the right with a cardboard sign. Know who I'm talking about? Maybe it's a, a disabled American vet. Maybe it's someone who's homeless. Maybe it's someone who's lost their job and says they've got four kids to feed. But there's that person off to the right and they're always off to the right. Do you adjust the place that your car is in the lanes to get as far away as possible? Maybe you're that unfortunate person and you're thinking, I'm, I, I got stuck there right here and I'm pulling up. And so what you do is you get busy with your dash or you look out the window or, or you, you fiddle with your phone or whatever it is that you do. Is it someone that you see as an opportunity to share the generosity that God has shown to you and to be the love of Jesus for them? Or do you do whatever you can to avoid them? 
See, that's what Paul's talking about, and that, that's where this passage is such a challenge for me, because I'm not the one initially that jumps to generosity all the time. The, the ladies in my house, they are. My wife and girls, much more so than me. I recognize that. It's not a good thing. And I read this passage and I'm reminded that I've got work to do because I know that I've got Jesus in me, but I don't always do a very good job of showing it to someone else in very practical ways. Do you see those people as an opportunity to show the love of Jesus to? Or do you see them as a burden that needs to be avoided? That, that simple test, that's the gospel in action for me. That's a tough one because it's so easy to do the right thing, but it's also so easy to do nothing. And Paul's talking about this church that for a long time did nothing, but now suddenly they have a reason to support him. He's in jail. They've got a reason to give him a hand. And so Paul goes on in verse 13. says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. To be content is to be at ease. To be content might not be comfortable. But you're comfortable with the situation. You're at ease in the situation that you're in. Remember, Paul's in prison. The prison doesn't have a meal program. They're not feeding him three times a day. There's no snack time at 10 and 3. If he gets food, someone has to give it to him. Someone has to bring it. If he has clothes to wear, someone has to bring those to him as well. If those clothes are going to get washed, someone has to take upon the, the responsibility of doing the laundry. But he says, it's not that I'm in need. He's not complaining. He's not asking for help. What he's actually doing is rejoicing in the Philippian church that they have an opportunity to minister to him. He's happy for them that they've got a chance to provide some basic needs for him. Only Paul would see what is a situation that we'd all look at and go, but I need food and I need clothes and I need fresh water. And he's looking at it saying, but you've got an opportunity to minister to me. And it's no different then in the church, people always say, the church is always asking for money. That's not true. It's God's church and it's all God's money. But what Paul is doing is saying, I'm so happy for you because you now have an opportunity to be able to minister to me. You've got an opportunity to help me out. And I think about that when it comes to our volunteering or our money, because that's a really hard one. Do you feel great about the opportunity to give to the local church? Or do you feel that it's an opportunity to be avoided? Paul would say, It's an opportunity that we should be grateful for, that we have a chance to make a difference in someone's life. But it really isn't any different because it's the same heart in me, it's the same heart in you that deals with the person because that's what we sometimes do is we have to deal with that person who's got the cardboard. Is it an opportunity or is it a burden? When it comes to giving to the local church, is it an opportunity or is it a burden? Just like the dollars help that person in a very real practical way. And what they're going to do with them, guess what? That's none of our business. That's between them and God. The dollars that we give to our church serve a very practical person. They, they, people, they, they serve a very practical need. It helps us to reach people with the love of Jesus. So Paul is proof of what Matthew twenty five forty says. The king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus is talking about when we do something for someone, they can't thank us. They can't do anything in return. Whoever the least of these is in the world in your mind. I use the example of someone who's fallen on hard circumstances and, and has to spend the day with a cardboard sign. When you do it to the least of them, you've done it to me. But when we don't do anything for them, we're also avoiding Jesus. 
When we do something to help them, no matter how small it might be or no matter how great it might be, we're doing it for Jesus. But when we avoid those people, when we turn our backs on those opportunities, we're turning our backs on Jesus. We're avoiding Jesus as well. That's why I say this passage is such a challenge for me. You go back to that person at the intersection, and that's such an easy way to do a heart check. What do you feel? Because it brings up some emotion in you. For some of us, it's avoid. And for some, it's can I park my car and run out and give them money and help? Opportunity or something to be avoided? And then we get to this part that is so powerful. Paul says he's learned to be content in every circumstance, in every situation. Think about what he's saying. This guy grew up in a very wealthy household. Easy to be content when things are easy and you've got a lot of money. He ends up becoming a Christian when he encounters the risen Lord on the road. He goes blind for a few days and everything about his world changes. Everything about Paul is transformed into that new creation we talk about. And it doesn't take very long and Paul has rocks thrown at him. And he thinks, what a great thing because... That's going to give me an opportunity to talk to someone about Jesus. And then he says, I'm content in every situation. He's dragged outside of town and he's left for dead. And he says, what a great opportunity because someone is going to come and help me back into town. And I got an opportunity to talk about Jesus. He's on a ship and the ship gets shipwrecked and he's without food. And, and his life is just suddenly craziness. And he thinks, wow, I'm going to be content because it's an opportunity to talk about Jesus. He gets thrown into jail. I'm content because that's even a greater opportunity to talk about Jesus. Paul rejoices because every situation he's in, he finds a reason and finds a way to talk about Jesus. And that's contentment. He's not looking for stuff. He's not looking for money. He's not looking for something else to do. He's looking for opportunities to share the gospel. And in that, he's content. He's learned not to expect more or ask more or look for someone to make things easier. And that's contentment, and that's hard. I was at a funeral once, and I I heard one of the most profound things that I've ever heard at a funeral service. It was for an an elderly woman, and uh, one of her sons got up to speak. It it was kind of a eulogy. It wasn't really the the message, but he was kind of speaking for the family. And she'd lived a good life, and she lived to a a good old age, and it was a good death that there's such a thing. And, And the family was grateful for the time that they had had with her. And he got up and he said something that I just, I've never forgotten. He said, you know, the thing that I most admired about my mom, the thing that I remember, because we grew up in a Christian home, he said, we always knew Jesus. We, we always went to church. But the thing that I remember about my mom is that she was content in every season of her life. She was content in every situation, taking the words right from Paul. When things were really good and we had plenty and there was a lot of food and there was more than enough money and everybody was healthy, she didn't try to stretch those seasons on longer than they, than they should have been. She just, she just contentedly lived in them and was grateful for them. But then those times, and we had some rough days, he said. We had some really hard days. Money was tight and food was short and health of everybody was not good. And those days, she didn't try to hurry through to get to the next chapter. She was simply content and was grateful and filled with gratitude for whatever season she was in because he said she knew God was in control. And he talked about understanding through her what Paul means about being content in every circumstance. It's not an easy thing to do. When we, when we get to a day when things are really rolling well for us, we want it to last forever. 
we try to find ways to stretch it out. Or when things are really bad, we try to shortcut it or go around it or get on to the next chapter. And he said she just was content no matter what the situation or circumstance was. And he said, now as, an, as a man myself, as a, as a father, I look back, and that was the greatest lesson that I learned from my mom, is that she was content in every season of her life. And what an incredibly powerful thing to say at someone's funeral. I heard a speaker a few years ago, and he was kind of talking about this issue, and he was talking about how important it is that we're direct and we relate to people. Because we live in this world where suddenly cell phones are more important and Facebook is more important than the person in front of us. And we're so easily distracted, and and everything is an opportunity to turn away and to look for something better, something different, something else. And what he said is, be where your feet are. That was his advice. Be where your feet are. Just be present in the moment that you're in. Don't look for something else. Don't look for someone better to talk to. Just be be where your feet are. And I think back to this guy talking about his mom. I think about Paul in prison. Just being where your feet are is being content with wherever it is God happens to have you in the moment. That's not an easy thing to do. I'm still learning that one. Verse 12, Paul goes on and he says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to be humbled. And I know how to abound. I know how to live with plenty. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He's about to give us the secret. He's about to give us what's the big answer. What's the one thing? See, Paul understood it because he had had those incredibly great differences in his life. He had gone from one to the other. So this next verse, the thing that he's about to share, we need to hear it. We need to believe it, we need to remember it, and we need to live it. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. The problem is is that we like our stuff, and we like convenience. And we like when life is easy and the living is good. We don't like when it's difficult. We don't like when things aren't going away. We, we, We don't like when we don't like our life. We like things to be good, and so we've got this attitude, even as Christians, and this is why I love it, because it reminds me how much work I have to do. We've got this attitude that I want what I want, and I want it now. The sad thing about that is is that all too often Christians are no better than the rest of the world about I want it now. And I don't know what your I want it now is. Maybe it's I want a new house, I want a new truck, I want a new car, I want to go fishing, I want to go hunting, I want to go golfing, I want to buy this, I want to buy that, I want to go here, I want to go there. But when we want it, we want it now. And we struggle with contentment about being grateful for what we have, especially when things aren't what we want. And yet Paul says the secret is so simple. Adam and Eve, they're a pretty good example of what happens when we, when we insist on wanting what we want and wanting it now. You remember, you go all the way back and God said, you get the entire garden, everything here. All of it is for you. But the fruit of that one tree, you leave that alone. Just don't eat the fruit of that one tree. That's all. Adam and Eve decided they wanted it and they wanted it now. And sin entered the world, and, and we've been trying to escape that in all of our ways because we realize that when we want it and we want it now, we're trying to live our life on our terms apart from God. And materialism in all of its shapes and sizes and forms, that just is when we give in to our sinful and selfish wants. And what we do is we end up chewing the, choosing the stuff of this world 
over choosing what it is that God wants for us. We want it, and we want it now. And there's no contentment, and there's no joy. And yet Paul says, I have learned the secret to living with plenty and to living with with little. Hunger, abundance, need, what's the secret? Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There's the secret. We can do, we can endure, we can carry through, we can carry on. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. The joy of Jesus, the power of Jesus in us is our strength. Now, now here's the thing. That doesn't mean that as a Christian you get to do whatever you want. That doesn't mean that God gives you some miraculous superpower that if you want it, you get it. It doesn't work like that. What's understood is that we can do all things that are within God's will for us. And then comes the second thing that we struggle with so hard. We struggle with being obedient to God. Adam and Eve couldn't be obedient to God. They had the entire garden, but they couldn't be obedient because they couldn't leave one tree alone. Obedience is such a difficult thing. But you know what? We've got the power of God in us. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave is alive in us. When you accept Jesus as your Savior, it's in you and I. And that gives us the power to turn from our sin. It gives us the power to live a life of obedience. It gives us the power to serve others when it isn't convenient. It gives us the power to to provide financial assistance to someone when we'd really rather not. And, and the thing is, when you do that and you think, well, now I've got to live without, turns out you don't ever have to live without anything. God somehow takes care of it when you say, I don't have the time, but you're obedient and you do it anyway. You know what? Not only you're not tired, but the time just seems to work. Work out. We can do all things through him who strengthens us. The problem is we try to do so much on our own. Contentment, then, is a product of obedience. And joy is the result. Contentment is the product of obedience and joy is the result. Maybe you think your life is just too bad for joy. It's too tough. It's just there's nothing good in it. And guess again. See, God living in you will give you joy. Maybe, maybe what's happening is that you've stopped looking up like the church in Philippi and you've just focused all of your time and energy looking in. Maybe you're focused on you. But if you're going to look in you, then look for God living in you and you will start looking up and you will realize you have reason for joy. See, when we live in God's will... We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Jesus even says in John 15, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, we're in Jesus. When we're we're living in God's will for our lives, there's nothing that God's going to call us to that we can't do. But the thing is, going back to Adam and Eve, we like to do things on our terms, our way, on our time frame. And it might feel like we do great things, and that's where our memory takes over and our reality doesn't live up. But God calls us to bear much fruit. And to do that, we have to be obedient to Him. And when we're obedient to Him, we can do everything that He calls us to do as people and as a church. And so let me give you an example of a a real-life testimony that, that you're sitting in and that you're a part of. The power of God at work because of obedient people. You here in the Open Door Christian Church are a living testimony of that. 
for 11 years, we haven't had enough money. We haven't had enough people. We, we, haven't, whew, we haven't had the best senior pastor. We haven't always had great preaching. But you know, we have people who are willing. We have people who are willing to be obedient and to step up when it's time to step up. And you know what? God has carried us through. And when we needed the people, the people showed up because God brought them to us. And, and when we had a financial need, somehow God provided. <laughs> and somehow your senior pastor keeps on chugging along. It's a matter of being obedient. And we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. If we tried to do this on our own, it would never work. It would fail miserably. And yet God at work in us, anything is possible. So just think about it. If the Open Door Christian Church is living proof, just think what God can do in you. If you started serving Jesus first, others second, and then yourself third. If you started living in joy the way the Bible talks about it. So I go back to the beginning, and I did a message on this about a year ago, the what if. What if we believed it? What if we really believed that what God said was true, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us? Not all things that I want to do, but all things that God has called us to do. What if we really believe that with Jesus living in us, everything that God has called us to do, if we're obedient, we can accomplish? What if we were less concerned about what we thought was our money and more concerned about what God was calling us to do in the world that required our money? What if we were less concerned about our time and we were more concerned about what God was calling us to do and the people he was giving us an opportunity to serve? What if we didn't turn an uncomfortable eye away from our neighbor who presents a need that we're really not feeling like we want to address? And rather we see it as an opportunity to live and to show the good news of Jesus. What if we were committed as individuals in the church to being living disciples of Jesus? Could you imagine what God could do? If we committed ourselves fully to loving Jesus and loving people and teaching people to love Jesus, I wonder what God could do in and through and with us. And it isn't about making us great because it's what God wants from every church. It's what God wants from every Christian. What if we simply agreed that we're going to be content and we're going to show the world the joy of Jesus that we have in our contentment. Not wishing or wanting or wasting. Just living every moment in the season that we're in. I'll tell you what would happen. We would be a truly radical Christian church. And I know that because when we look at the book of Acts, that's what happened. That's what the people did. It was a truly radical Christian church. It's a church that we've got a record of. We're going to spend uh, our spring and summer after Resurrection Sunday. We're going to dive into the book of Acts and we're going to go all the way through it. And we're going to understand what it is that God was doing and how is it that God was able to accomplish so much through those imperfect people. Because it's a church in so many ways, just like ours, but they were willing to be obedient. What if we believe that we could do all things through Christ who strengthens us and rather be concerned about what we want? We were concerned about what God called us to be and doing what God wanted us to do. I wonder what if. Let's pray. God, thank you for this letter from Paul. Thank you for the imperfect man that wrote it. Because we understand being imperfect. I certainly understand being imperfect. I am not the perfect senior pastor. We are not a congregation full of perfect people. But you never called any of us to that. You called us to be faithful and obedient. And Paul is encouraging us 
to understand how to be content. And to be content is to be grateful for Jesus, for what it is that he has done for us that we cannot do for ourselves. God, this is such a challenging passage because we just can't read it and say I'm getting everything right. I certainly have work to do. We all have work to do. Thank you that you have given us Jesus in the grace of his death and resurrection. We get to continue trying to get it right. And God, I just pray in your Holy Spirit that we would want to be people, we would choose to be people, you would cause us to be people who wanted to live as radical disciples of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.